Hello and welcome to episode 3 of season 2 of The Coriolis Effect, The Forbidden Emissary. I'm Dave. And I'm Matthew. And boy, have we got a lot to talk about this episode. We do. We've been away for a month. Well, we haven't really. Obviously, we've been doing RPG a day throughout August. But that does mean that we haven't kind of been doing our usual content. So we've got really quite a lot to catch up on. We've got the release of the uh, final PDFs for Forbidden Lands and the beta PDF for Emissary Lost. So we'll want to be talking about that. And on that theme, um, some listeners may also have heard Red Moon role-playing doing their actual play of A Song for Jeruma, which is a sort of prequel episode to the Emissary Lost campaign. We talked with Adam Palmquist, who is a writer on Emissary Lost and also the GM for Red Moon Roleplaying's brand new Emissary Lost actual play podcast. Uh, we've also got uh, a thing, a bit of work I asked you to do last last time we met, which seems a long time ago. And I asked you to explain poisons and explosions to me. So uh, you've got that. Um, and I think we've got quite a lot to catch up in our in our two um, Coriolis campaigns, haven't we? We have a bit to talk and about. And then I'm going to talk about Al Mukadir, which is. Uh, a ship I've designed for the crew in my Coriolis campaign. In fact, actually, as we'll find out, there are two ships involved. Hmm. Interesting. Look forward to seeing that. Cool. So we've got a, a bumper, uh, a bumper episode this week, this month. So, um, well, let's go straight on into the world of gaming. I think the first thing I wanted to say was just very briefly reflect on how much I enjoyed doing the RPG a day podcasts, and I hope our uh, our listeners uh, enjoyed it and could uh, could cope with only hearing us for five or six minutes a day, even though it was every day for the month. But that was really good. I really, really enjoyed that. And I think we ought to try and do something similar next year. Yeah, maybe something similar but different next year. Hey, we don't want to be the same every time, do we? Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed it. It was great fun recording them um, and uh, talking about all sorts of things under the sun, as prompted by the questions. Um, but, uh, yeah, I hope, as uh, as you say, Dave, that our listeners have enjoyed it. I think we um, probably, on average, got about 50 or 60 more subscribers, and they're still being downloaded, so people are still listening, even though it is no longer the month of August. Excellent. Uh, so that's, that's great to hear. It is. And if there are any more listeners for whom this is... The first time you've heard our usual content, well, thank you for staying with us. And welcome. And um, prepare to be blown away. <laughs> prepare to be blown away with just minutes upon minutes and hours upon hours of us blathering on about stuff. And yeah, but but structured blathering on. Um, <laughs> and, and it will be longer than your five-minute episodes. It certainly uh, will. And in fact, actually... We can't make it too long. We have got a lot to talk about. Yeah. So, um, so Dave, tell me about Forbidden Lands. Well, you should tell me about Forbidden Lands because you've been uh, doing your blogs on uh, each chapter. You've been going through them, which I found really interesting. I have read the, the all the books now, um, and I'm I really am really excited to give this a go. I I just read the other day your your piece on rolling up random characters which I thought was really interesting. And I think I'm 
I'm when it comes to rolling up a character, I'm going to reserve the right to choose, but I'm going to try doing it all with the rolls because I think I quite like that idea. And I um, games now. I think we talked about this before. Most games now, a lot of games now, encourage you or push you down the direction of designing your character through your own preferences rather than giving you a character that is much more random and then you take that character and make 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 of it what you can. And I quite like that randomness. So I'm looking forward to very much rolling up a character that I probably will absolutely hate because I'll get all the wrong dice rolls from what I'm thinking of. Well, we'll we'll see. I mean, it, it's really interesting actually having done the process. Um, we ought to explain. You've read all the books all the way through. I haven't yet, so you know a lot more about what's in the Game Master's Guide than I do, because literally I've started reading the first chapter of that. Um, but what I'm doing is I was going to say now there is there is quite a lot of uh, reference material in the Game Master's book, as you'd expect, rather than additional mm-hmm. rulings and stuff. Um, I mean, the other thing that I really like about the game and I'm really interested and keen to try is the whole stronghold uh, mechanic and element, which I think is something that certainly for me is a real strong point, real attraction for the game. I've played, I've, I've, I've GM'd Mutant Year Zero, where you have the arc concept, which again, I really like that sort of additional level, additional layer of, of, of game uh, over and above just the mm-hmm. being your character. And then, obviously, the stronghold takes that and does it differently. But again, it keeps that whole sort of home building um, warmth that I like in a game where you've you've got something to construct more than just accumulating gold, which I think is a really, really nice element. Looking forward to that big time. And we are yeah. hopefully yeah. going to be having a run of this in in a week or two, aren't we? You're going to run a a kind of one off session for us. Yeah, I hope I've read enough of the Game Master's Guide before then to uh, uh-huh. to be able to do do it um, on it. I did try um, running a beta version, or the alpha version, actually, when that first came out, and I made a bit of a hash of it because hmm. it's somewhat more complex than Coriolis, actually. You think it's the same rule system, but actually there's, there's more to think about and to keep track of. Um, so it wasn't my best GMing session. Uh, but um, I'm really looking forward to uh, to uh, trialling this guys with the team. And we may record it. Uh, the studio conditions where we're rolling aren't optimal. So we may decide it's not good enough, particularly if it rains. No. <laughs> but if we do record it, we'll put it online as well. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that. So, so yeah. I was thinking about that. And that would end up probably being called, you know, if you follow the same uh, Simba Room effect, uh, principle that would be called the forbidden effect potentially and i i was thinking yeah. i was out for a long walk this morning and i was thinking about it and i thought mm, that that rather sounds like the title of some crappy 1970s porn movie so we might want to think of something <laughs> else maybe but you never know you know i've been mulling over things and actually forbidden comes up quite a lot but pretty much everything sounds like a 1970s porn movie <laughs> when you've got the word forbidden in. <laughs> i thought about in Forbidden Company. <laughs> no, so, absolutely, because um, we're not Forbidden Company. We're 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 mandatory company for our listeners. I hope. Yes. yes. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe we should go with something about Ravenland or something like that instead. <laughs> um, but we will uh, 
keep people informed about that. Yeah, the other thing that obviously I'm really looking forward to is just getting my hands on the books. And as this Kickstarter for Forbidden Lands is coming to its close, um, we should be getting them hopefully end of this month, early next. So I really cannot wait yes. to get hold of those. That's going to be great. But talking of Kickstarters, I saw um, the other day that there is a Kickstarter starting in about a week or so, 18th of September, I think, for the things oh, from yes. the flood. Free Ellie Gan's next instalment in, I'm guessing, Mutant um, Year Zero Engine games, which takes the Tales from the Loop and gives it some teeth. <laughs> in that you can, <laughs> the kids have grown up a little bit and it's okay to kill them now. So uh, I'm. Does it actually say it talks about it being darker than Tales in the Loop? But does it actually say you can die? Yes. In any of well, the free. Uh, one of the things I saw on Facebook, um, one of the Freely guys had said, "Yes, the kids can die." So. Right. Okay, that's all you need, Dave, isn't it? Because you've been <laughs> desperate to kill those kids. Well, I, I was, but I mean, uh, as, as as having played Tales from the Loop that one time, and. Hopefully, we'll I'll run the next of the scenarios that came with the core book when we meet up in early November. Um, I loved it; it was great. I did, you didn't. I was convinced that you didn't need to have the threat of death to make a a game play brilliantly well, which you did. But it was interesting looking at the cover art. I just had a scent of um, the things from the flood. I just had a real sense: is this? Uh, Tales from the Loop meets Cthulhu. Are they stepping into that? Oh, are they stepping into that, that space a bit? Strange tentacle creature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It looked very, um, it looked very Cthuloid to me. Um, and then I thought, is this also stepping on the toes or encroaching on the ground that is occupied by cult as well? It's certainly in the Swedish gaming mm -hmm. community. Now, I, it made me also think I'd quite like to get hold of cult and just have a look at it, even if we don't get a chance to play it. But I'm quite excited about things from the flood. I fully expect I will back it. Although having said that, I've got a lot of stuff backed at the moment. And I probably have to draw the line somewhere. But probably not with things from the flood. I expect I'll back that. <laughs> yeah, you went You went on rain after we talked about it. Uh, I did, uh, yeah. During RPG a day, didn't you? So well done there. You know, I almost relented. There was a moment <laughs> on uh, a particular evening where I thought, actually, I'll get rain as well, because obviously Dave's going to back it. And I went went to the thing and the back of, uh, the Kickstarter had finished. And oh, I no. kind of felt relieved that okay. I didn't have to. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, um, they're producing more games, or they're kickstarting for more games. And you might think, well, surely they've got to start delivering on some of these. But <laughs> as you've said, the hard copies of... Forbidden Lands should be coming through our door uh, our letterboxes quite soon. And we've got the beta of Emissary Lost. We have. Now, you are under strict instructions <laughs> not to download that PDF well, I've, or read page one. I've downloaded it. You've downloaded it? Yeah, I haven't read any of it, though. Don't so, tell me you've downloaded it. <laughs> well, if I hadn't downloaded it, I'd have lost the email somewhere in the depth of it and I'd have never got around to downloading it at all. So I've downloaded it. I haven't read it. Um, I thought it was very interesting when I, I texted you saying, oh, I'll just read the introduction. And you texted back, going, no, don't do it. No. Don't read the introduction. So I no, have, the introduction uh, has major spoilers, guys. Yeah. Uh, if you are hoping to play this game, uh, <laughs> don't read it. Do not. 
read even the introduction. Mm. I wonder, in fact, uh, because this is a beta, I wonder whether Fear Legan will have learned from this and will put a new page one with a new introduction for players saying, go no further! Yeah, yeah. Read no more of this. That's probably um, very wise, yeah. But uh, it's it was, um, yeah, it's... I haven't actually had time to read it, partly because I work for a living and I'm doing a PhD and I was running a game last night and... Uh, I'm reading very slowly uh, Forbidden Lambs and writing about it as I read. Excuses, so, um, excuses, got... excuses. That's all you are, Matt, isn't it? Just one excuse after the other. But as I say, two things have happened. <laughs> one is I read the introduction and it blew my little mind. Um, <laughs> See, it doesn't help me not reading it when you say things like that. <laughs> you know. And the other thing that happened is I thought, you know, this is going to have serious resonance and interaction with my campaign. And uh, I had it loaded on my pad just in case an opportunity came up to do a quick search and find. And indeed, it uh, it was useful. Uh, it provided me with a non-player character for an action the guys um, uh, took. And I thought rather than randomly roll one up, um, I'll, I'll see if this book's got one. And okay. It's already given me that. So... So that's brilliant. Uh, I've seeded the future Emissary Lost campaign in the campaign I'm running, which is always going to segue into Emissary Lost. Um, That segue is going to be a bit more difficult, Hmm. but also a bit more brilliant than it was going to be, I think, because it's marvellous. The little I've read of it so far is absolutely (laughs) marvellous. Don't read it. Thanks. I'm just wondering if I could read it and then just pretend I haven't. <laughs> yes. But then, but then I we can't, didn't get any clues. I can't talk to you about Did it. Did we? Then, when we no. talked to Adam about it. No. He was very good well, at, at keeping us um, a spoiler free. Uh, he was, but I, we, were, we didn't spot any uh, obvious spoilers in there. But maybe our audience might find them when they listen to us talking to Adam Palmquist. So Dave and I are with Adam Palmquist, who is, uh, has got a long history with Coriolis but you're here today Adam to talk particularly about the uh, actual play podcast that you'll be GMing for our friends over at Red Moon yeah yeah Um, but we're also interested to hear that you've been a writer on Emissary 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 thank you Emissary yeah. lost, and and before that, on on first edition Coriolis. So we ask all our interviewees uh, the same question to start: Can you tell us all about your life in gaming? Okay, uh, where should I start? I started playing uh, tabletop RPGs when I was around um, ten or eleven years old. I uh, I was invited by my neighbors to play with. My name, my best friend's big older brother, and we played uh, a session of uh, Drakar och Demoner. It's the sw- uh, yeah. Swedish version of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, more or less, uh, but uh, with uh, a slight different uh, rule system. Uh, it's more of a base, uh, basic role-playing system than the the Dungeons and Dragons system. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, since then, 
ever since uh, I've been more or less very into tabletop RPGs. But um, I now I work as a gamification designer. Um, so I'm working with designing serious games, gamification um, uh, programs and platforms and persuasive games to... Um, for uh, you know, I rent. Um, I uh, let's take it. Uh, I take it uh, for learning and in school, um, in different schools, mostly for people with uh, neurodevelopment disorders. Ah, oh, excellent. Uh, Interesting. And I also worked with different uh, medical companies that uh, looking into eating disorders and uh, drinking disorders. So mm-hmm. I'm working with games, uh, m- mm. but more on a on a serious game, uh, not in entertainment so much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Were you part of um, the same crowd with uh, Matthias, Lilia, and uh, those guys back in the day? Were you are you sort of old, long time childhood friends of those guys? Is that how you got uh, together? Actually, uh, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Sweden is uh, is uh, is a quite uh, we're not so many people here, but it's quite a big country, uh, the geographically anyway. Yeah, uh, I'm um, I'm based in Gothenburg, and Lilia and those guys are based in Stockholm. Stockholm, yeah. And uh, but I connected with uh, Costa Costales uh, from the Free League. When the first iteration of uh, Coriolis uh, was released, more or less, and we started to make some f- f- fan scene material, more or less, for yeah. uh, the, yes. the first edition of Coriolis, and I wrote some um, uh, some adventure packs for uh, for the the first edition. Uh, it. Uh, one of the most memorable was uh, it's called um, Iskalt Inferno uh, in Swedish it's mm. more um, uh, ice cold inferno or um, uh, inferno sub-zero yeah. <laughs> in, in a direct <laughs> <laughs> direct t- translation <laughs> um, and it's about uh, ah, it's about uh, uh, um, I, I I had so much inspiration from the early John Carpenter movies uh, and the, the th- <laughs> a man after my own heart. Actually. Yeah, and Likewise. The, yeah. Uh, the thing, of course, uh, it's about a research base <laughs> on a, on a cold cold moon in the Sura system. We um, I keep on going on about the thing because it's one of my favourite movies ever. Yeah, and we do we've done some podcasts for the RPG a day, and in that I promised that I wouldn't mention the thing in this podcast. But you mentioned it first, Adam, so it's okay. It's okay. You mentioned it first. And I didn't prime you to mention it either. Uh, The thing is, it's a great movie, and it has a good plot, and it's a really good plot for uh, a night of tabletop RPG. You don't know who is the monster, is the monster even here, Uh, and so on and so forth. It's got a real, real scary take on the human nature and what we are prepared to do to each other when we're yes. looking for the monster. So, uh, yeah, I really <laughs> love those themes in in uh, pop culture. Yeah, me too. 
Um, so that's that's one of your favourite scenarios uh, from the first edition of Coriolis. But uh, can you tell us what input have you had on Emissary Lost for this uh, brand new version that's coming out? Yeah, uh, I, me and Costa Costelas and uh, Richard Antroya uh, mm-hmm. wrote the most parts of uh, based on uh, the Lilia material, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard Antroya was more like an editor. And uh, Costa, uh, he is one of the the founding members of Free League. He yes. wrote the first part, more or less, and I wrote the second part. It's mm-hmm. it's uh, divided into different uh, adventure sets. Let's just clarify that. So, um, uh, obviously, this is going to come out as a multi-part epic anyway. Are you saying you wrote the second part of this first book? That yeah, is currently yeah. being kickstarted. Gotcha. Um, the the first chapter, I will not spoil anything, but the first mm-hmm. chapter is more uh, intense, uh, space station oriented, and uh, the second part that I which I wrote is more uh, down planetary, down the mud kind of thing. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh I have uh, my uh, sources of inspiration were Joseph Conrad and uh, some literature from South America mm. I w- picked up when I was studying at the university. But because uh, the truth is I wrote this several years ago uh, mm. in uh, to um, 2015 maybe, 2014. But uh, then the emissary lost was in some kind of um, uh, production limbo uh, yeah. because uh, the whole Coriolis system was going through massive uh, iterations with the, the rule set, and they didn't, uh, they hadn't landed in um, the the mutant zero rule set for the Coriolis at the time being. So uh, uh, right. the narrative was done much. Uh, a, a year or so before the the rule set was uh, was yeah. decided. Mm-hmm. It's a story that's been waiting to be told. Then, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, and I think that uh, Atroya's work on the editing was really good because I wrote the narrative without any rules. <laughs> I didn't know yeah. which rule set I should write the narrative for, so mm. it was very speculative and <laughs> i did some notes in the um, uh, in the sidelines but here we can put some interesting <laughs> game mechanics but i don't <laughs> know which <laughs> so it's a uh, yeah atroya did a great work <laughs> obviously <laughs> you're with us today because you're going to be running this yeah uh, for our friends over at red moon role playing have you actually started recording yet or is that all still um about to happen uh, we have uh, finished uh, the prologue, uh, the the last voice of Gasalis, which Free uh, League Publishing rewrote from the Lilia uh, Lilia script. Mm-hmm. Uh, the last voice of Gasalis was one of the original pieces of the first iteration of Coriolis, and uh, it it it. It still was the prologue for the the main campaign, Emissary Lost. 
And uh, ha- in the first iteration, I think that the, the last voice of Gasalis had a bigger part to play than uh, it has now in the second mm. iteration. But it's still a great, uh, it's a great piece of um, adventure. And I really love the narrative. So we, basically, we stopped recording the last voice of Gasalis a week ago, and we shall start with the emissary lost in a couple of weeks i it's it's my fault it's it's, uh, Hmm. time is dragging out i got some other deadlines i have to uh finish before this we all have lives (laughs) (laughs) yeah we have (laughs) uh so tell me last voyage uh last voyage of uh guitarist is will that be giving us clues about what actually happened in don't spoil this but um will we find out more about the towing incident yeah yeah you will, you will. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, adventure to get uh, the the players or the the characters, the player characters, into mm-hmm. the bigger plot to get a feel of the bigger plot of the the whole third horizon, fraction um, fraction wars and all that. So mm-hmm. I think. It's you don't have to play it with the same characters which are playing the emissary lost, but you should definitely play it to get a more uh, feel to the third horizon and what uh, what it can be expect in later versions in emissary lost. So for example, yeah. th- that's very interesting. I was going to ask about the characters. Um, uh, I had kind of assumed that a bit like a lo- uh, the song for Jeruma that you might be playing a, 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 a an entirely different set of characters yeah, in The Last yeah. Voyage from what you're actually playing in MO3 Lost. Is that right? Uh, or, or can, re, you, can re, you carry your characters over if you... Yeah, design? yeah, yeah. Uh, the Last Voyage of Gesalis and uh, MO3 Lost, is, uh, it's very easy to to play the, with with the same characters uh, in the both uh, adventure sets uh, the Yaruma scenario I haven't read it but I heard the podcast it's mm-hmm. much more difficult to to yeah. use the same characters of course and so um uh uh, of course uh, that that's assuming they survived the last voyage <laughs> yeah. I guess yeah um, yeah of course uh, I wanted to ask, uh, what can you tell us about the crew? What are the characters we're likely to meet if we uh, if we listen to the podcast? Oh, uh, we have three very interesting characters. We have a, a very good-looking and dashing captain uh, from uh, the Dabaran system, and we have a, a silent but uh, sharp pilot from the Senetian. Uh, hegemony and a, si- well. a silent a silent character for a podcast you might have to <laughs> encourage uh, him to talk a bit i guess <laughs> hey, hey, i play a silent character for, yeah but you, you can play a podcast you, you uh, don't um you show don't tell right <laughs> let the action talk and uh, we also have a very strange mechanic and i uh, i leave you at that <laughs> ah, cool. that's interesting. Yeah, our crew also has a Zenithian pilot and a very strange mechanic. <laughs> mm. Yeah, <laughs> stereotype for, one, for the Korean one who should be dead. <laughs> <Yes>. <clears throat> um, 
Dave, I've been hogging the questions. Have you got any you want to ask? Well, I was going to just uh, sort of talk a little bit about the um, uh, yeah, the, the, the podcast. And so you're going to run through uh, the Emissary Lost campaign as part of that podcast. Is that the plan to do the whole thing? Yeah, actually, we plan to do the whole thing. We started to make a roadmap uh, to see uh, when we should um, <clears throat> and how we should perform this because half of the the podcast crew is in london uh the uh, one f- one fourth is in malmo and the other fourth is in uh, gothenburg so and we all got lives and we all got uh, different projects running so we are looking how should it even be possible but i think we are really getting somewhere to with the planning and the roadmap so uh, we are looking into have at least one session recorded every other week so right. yeah uh, and we're doing and quite short sessions about two uh, maybe three hours it's more convenient when you're playing in in this kind of uh, mode when you're not yeah. uh, engaging with the with other persons around the table so you're going to be looking at um sort of a two-hour episode every couple of weeks yeah yeah yeah, uh, and how long do you think that'll run then? How long? How long? <laughs> it's hard to say. I mean, it's... this is maybe a, maybe a bit of a spoiler about how long the <laughs> the actual emissary last campaign will last. But um, uh, I actually I got the book here. I can tell you the the page number if if you hang on a second. Is it okay? Yeah, yeah, yeah of no, course. That's good. He's got the book. I'm jealous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, could you stick that in the post and send it to us, Adam? <laughs> It'll be in Swedish. <laughs> it's in Swedish though. Can, can, my wife, my wife can translate. She's Swedish. So uh, yeah, how much of the first edition of Coriolis has she translated well, none, so far? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I can <laughs> tell you that uh, the Gasalis episode uh, took about four, maybe five sessions to record, and it was mm-hmm. s- around uh, sixty-one pages. Right. Uh, the MSR lost. Uh, is 250 pages <laughs> uh, and then you do the math yep yep so cool. we have uh, we have some <laughs> some sessions um, <laughs> you got a lot of playing to do yeah. yeah but it's fun it's fun it's uh and it's it's quite um i i have never uh, i listened to red moon role playing but i have never played with them then uh, matthias Asked me if I wanted to lead this uh, because I was one of the uh, ri- um, I co-written the the MSR Lost and mm. um, I said yes uh, with some thinking <laughs> because I, I, know, <laughs> I know it's a ma- it's a massive campaign and this is the first part of the MSR Lost. Maybe I cannot tell how many more it will, but at least it will one more uh, Mercy of the Icon part. Two will uh, will hit the stores. I don't know, but um, so uh, and it should be at least two hundred fifty pages one mm. more time. So so it's it's a it's a long project, but uh, I, it's it's a fun project. So it will it will last. I was I was going to ask, do you actually get much time to uh, to to game as opposed to working on it? But I I guess the these podcasts should be 
feel more like fun than work hopefully yeah yeah they do they do um but i also do some uh, at my um, the gamification office uh we play uh, Coriolis as well uh so we have uh employer branding uh, every every tuesday uh, every other mm-hmm. th- tuesday we play Coriolis with me as game master so uh, i'm i'm do- <laughs> getting my share of uh, rpg <laughs> I also started play with my wife's uh, with my wife's with my wife. Uh, uh, <laughs> <laughs> cut that out. How many right? do you have? <laughs> <laughs> cut that out, okay? Uh, uh, with my What's wife. What's it worth? <laughs> and uh, and her uh, siblings uh, a, uh, a year ago. Nice. And uh, uh, I'm start my children is soon. I one is four and the other one is three. So. In a couple of years, I can start playing with them as well. So uh, mm-hmm. I, I have a lot of sessions coming up. <laughs> but maybe not Coriolis. No, no. Game. I'm uh, <laughs> looking into. Uh, there's some uh, actually some good Swedish games for the first time players called. Um, uh, it's about more about storytelling than um, than than rule sets and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. More like adventure games, actually. But uh, I think they're quite good to start with. Uh, I was about, like I said, 10 or 11. But I think my daughters will be uh, eight, <laughs> eight, nine when they start. <laughs> start them early. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, coming back to the podcast, um, uh, Red Moon are going to be releasing this as a bonus for their Patreon backers. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And so um, if people want to listen, they're going to have to sign up to Red Moon. Uh, well, I think it's their $3 level. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, that's $3 a month. So effectively, if you do manage to do an episode every two weeks, that's kind of... A dollar fifty an episode. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, that's right. Uh, and um, I think it's 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 money well spent. Uh, you get uh, insight of the Coriolis. We also use uh, for this campaign Sirenscape, uh, the um, the RPG tool. Do you know what it is? Mm-hmm. Uh, Sirenscape to to do sound effects, and we adding a lot of um, different. Uh, voice uh, scripts and uh, and music to it as well so um, yeah. it's uh, it's it, yeah it's money well spent so it's more of a production than just a recording of guys around the table yeah yeah definitely uh, having a laugh yeah oh cool and this is the first time you've played with the guys at Red Moon yes yes um, so yeah, do you know them at all did you know Matthias beforehand or uh did his uh, request come out of the blue? Hmm. Uh, I knew about him. Uh, uh, earlier, I was part of a, a much smaller podcast uh, playing um, the new uh, Yandring and uh, RPG called Simbarum. And Simbarum, we, yeah. we just played for fun in Swedish. And, but uh, Matthias was one of our first uh, enthusiastic uh, listeners and uh, really shared us on, uh, but I uh, I stopped recording with uh, uh, with this post- podcast because I got so much to do at work. Um, 
but and a year and a half later Matthias asked me if if I could uh, lead uh, the MSR last campaign and uh, I said yes in many there's many reasons I said yes one is that I love Coriolis and I also I my prep work don't have to be so in such an extent because I <laughs> I, I wrote the book. Yeah. You're familiar with it already. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that's uh, and and I really love um, the Red Moon and what they're doing with uh, with the hobby with with the pop culture of RPG. There's a there, yeah. Now we asked in in uh, chat when we were discussing this interview. We asked Mateus whether this might ever. Um, be free to to more casual podcast listeners and he said he's got no plans at the moment but um given that we want to you know our, our cause at the coriolis effect is to spread the love for coriolis i'm just going to say now you know publicly that you know if he can at some point think to releasing it free to just get more people into the world of coriolis um we'd love to hear that we'd love to be able to promote that to to people who might not have touched the third horizon yet. No. But um, I think we've reached the end of our questions, unless, Dave, you've got any more? No, I think there's one other thing, I mean, Adam. It's, it's really it's a delight to talk to you. And um, I think for me as a as a, as a, as a long-time role player and a fan of Coriolis and a lot of the, you know, all the free league stuff that's out there, um, you know, I just want to say a, a, a big thanks to you and the guys for making such, you know, excellent role-playing games. Oh, um, thank you. But there's one... Um, the one thing I'd, I'd ask: Are there gems from the old sort of Yen Ringen days of Coriolis, or even in the early days of Coriolis, that that didn't get produced, or haven't been published yet, that you'd like to see published, mm-hmm. or any yeah. that you'd like to see translated into English? Yeah, or any you'd like to see translated. Yeah, uh, there are some material um, that I saw some early drafts at, and I was I was part of writing them as well. And uh, yeah. they never really uh, get to the the last product state. Um, maybe they're in inversion zero point seven or zero point eight. But I yeah. s- I see some cool stuff. I see some really good drafts, and I really hope that the free league publishing is going to release them. Uh, free league has all the drafts, I suppose. So. Uh, it's up to them but i i know they're they're choked they got a lot of things on their table at the moment um but uh, yeah i was gonna say i guess there's a there's a there's only so many hours in the day yeah <laughs> to do these things yeah and um yeah but uh i saw f- uh, i can give you an example uh and uh, uh a, a really really good uh scenario plot and a uh, were uh, Atlas. It's called. Uh, it's called now uh, at the quadrant of the pillars. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, and I was uh, I was one of the lead writers on that one, uh, and I really hope that they will look into releasing both the the, the compendium and uh, the scenario because it it's uh, it was fun writing it and we all put a lot of effort into it. So. Yeah, I think Custos, when we interviewed him in uh, Stockholm, said that that was his favourite part of the horizon. Yeah. And, uh, that he kind of feels he owns a, a, a bit, and a lot of his imagination's gone in there. So maybe they will. 
Yeah, I, I, uh, uh, fingers crossed, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Adam. And uh, as Dave said, you know, thank you for for all the work that you've put into the campaign that we're we're all waiting for and will be out very soon from Free League. Um, and if anybody wants to listen to the Red Moon role playing, we'll we'll put a link for their normal podcast feed and a link for Patreon into our show notes. We will. Thank you. That's great. Well, having read even the little that I have read of Emissary Lost, I can pretty much assure you that Adam was incredibly reserved and didn't let loose a single spoiler. In <laughs> so it's all to play for. Yes, excellent. No, it was really good. It was really good uh, opportunity to chat through some of that stuff with Adam. And uh, I, I would like to just say one thing to those listeners who who had listened to the RPG a day where I promised not to mention the thing. I didn't mention it. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't tee up Adam to mention it. So don't blame me. It wasn't my fault. Honest gov. <laughs> but I won't, I won't mention it again. Anyway. So just, that was hilarious when you said it. Though. Um, uh, but um, Yes. So I thought, oh God, promise broken already. And it wasn't my fault. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, and it's interesting, you know, I, uh, I, I expressed my disappointment in that interview uh, that the uh, campaign is hidden behind a paywall. Mm. But actually, yeah. that's a very good thing because players really don't want to be paying their $3 a month to Red Moon role-playing so they can listen to the campaign. And if they do want to cheat, then it should cost them $3 a month. Haha, <laughs> yeah. At the very least. Yeah, so it was something that I don't think we really got into very much, which was, uh, obviously, it's going to be, if they're starting to run these, like, soon, um, it's going to be packed full of spoilers. So that might well put people off from li- listening to it, because they don't want to, uh, don't want to spoil it for themselves when they come to play it, play it for themselves. Yeah. No, it's a really interesting quandary for yeah. Coriolis fans, actually. Um, but I'll leave it up to you guys, listeners. <laughs> uh, and if we start, uh, well, I think we can be pretty sure when uh, we're not going to produce uh, a podcast version of Emissary Lost uh, as an actual play no, for no. many, many months. So you're pretty safe with us. <laughs> but yeah, it's an interesting choice to make when uh, Red Moon start doing their thing. Yeah. I want to spread the Coriolis love, but at the same time, part of me wants to go, don't listen to the Red Moon <laughs> playing podcast. Yeah. Guys, I love you. They do lots of other things. Listen to all those. Listen to Songs for Jeruma. I think uh, that could be essential listening. It's um, You can play that as well. That will be coming out as part of the Kickstarter package, but it isn't quite as spoilery it's about stuff that we're already aware of that happens the, yeah. before isn't it yeah it's kind of a prequel yeah yeah yes it's kind of a prequel yeah cool anyway um is it time to talk about poisoning people how to play poisons and explosions i, I think it might be brilliant so you've recorded a little piece as is our want let's listen to that and it's mia Legion assassin and sometime member of the Spectral Corsair's crew had the poison in his hand and was ready to kill his target. 
He crept into the woman's bedchamber and hid the aerosol containing the deadly poison, called Fury, a poison with a strength of eight, the strongest in the Third Horizon. Once in place, the aerosol would slowly release the poison into the air, and the victim would surely die quietly in her sleep. Then I got the rules wrong. The poison was rubbish and was never going to kill her, so Ajit shot her instead. But that said, even if I'd followed the rules as written, the poison couldn't possibly have killed the target anyway. Poisons have an attack strength between 1 and 8, with up to 5 being the most common, and that's the number of dice rolled in a poison attack. The strength of the poison is tested against a specific stat in an opposed roll. Against strength for something like cyanide perhaps, or empathy for a psychedelic poison. If the victim resists, they suffer minus one die to the attacked stat for 1d6 hours. But if the poison wins, the victim takes the full strength of the poison as damage, to either hit points or stress, depending on the stat that's targeted by the poison in the first place. But poison has no crit value, so even a maximum hit with the strongest poison will only deliver 8 damage to hit points. The victim might be broken, but there's no way he's going to die. So either the poisoners of the Third Horizon are chronically crap at mixing up poisons, or the rules need a little shake-up. I think there might be two ways to sharpen up the potential deadliness of poisons. The simplest way would be to say that if a victim is broken by the poison, they take an immediate crit. This could work, but the poison would still have to be pretty strong to have a decent chance of breaking the target, and then the crit roll is unlikely to kill them. And of course, this would only apply to poisons that target a victim's strength or agility. If a psychedelic drug targeting empathy or wits broke the target, they will be down but not take a critical hit at all. A second method would be to add a damage and a crit value to poisons. The poison attack would still be resolved by an opposed roll. The number of successes the poison achieves is equal to the number of sixes rolled over and above the victim. This would work well for poisons that attack the physical attributes, but would weaken the efficacy of poisons that target empathy or wits. The book implies that you can add specific effects to poisons like paralysis, but there are no rules about how to manage this, so it's entirely up to you as GM to add some poison spice to your games. I've used the paralysis effect in my campaigns. The Diamondback's Kiss derived from the venom of the equatorial diamondback snake found in the deserts of Lubao. It's an autonomic suppressant that can be delivered in multiple ways, but in my scenario it was delivered by smoking a hookah. The poison has strength of 8, targeted against agility, and for every success the victim loses 2 points of agility for 2d6 turns. If agility is reduced to 0, the victim is paralysed but conscious. And once the duration of the poison expires, the victim recovers one point of agility per hour. The book also says that poisons cost between 300 and 3000 burr per dose, and are listed as primitive tech. I'm not sure about this last point. I mean, Novichok certainly is not primitive. Now explosives. In Coriolis, explosives have a blast power. Uh, can be anything up to 15, but usually 6 or 9, and they have a damage rating and a crit rating. Most only have an effect up to close range, and remember that's only up to 2 metres, 
but some do reach as far as short range, which is up to 20 metres. All those within the blast radius take a hit. You can either roll a separate attack for each target, or roll once for all, depending on how many victims you've got packed into the blast radius. And remember that it's a ranged combat check if you want to lob a grenade or a stick of dynamite. So that's all pretty straightforward, and I think works well enough. On top of that, some explosives have special effects. Either stun, which I'll come back to in a moment, or fire. The fire effect obviously means that the victims start to suffer a fire attack as well as the impact of the explosion. Either at two or three attack dice, and with a crit of one. The attack dice increase by one every turn, until you stop, drop and roll, or a mate puts the fire out for you. But stun. I, I have a problem with the stun mechanic as a whole in Coriolis. Sure, the idea of having a stress value that could put you out of action is cool, but without an equivalent stress critical hit table, it becomes pretty hard to put somebody down with stress. Stun weapons, and that includes stun grenades, simply inflict damage to stress rather than to hit points. Even a lucky attack roll is unlikely to do enough stress damage to put a man down in one go, which seems pretty weak to me. Surely the idea of a stun weapon is to temporarily incapacitate a victim quickly and possibly quietly. Having very little hope of doing this in one blow completely negates the attractiveness of stunning someone, when you're just as well off hitting for hit points, converting all your successes into hit point damage rather than crits, and achieving the same outcome, probably more effectively, by breaking the target on hit points. I don't know if anyone has seen a modern day flashbang grenade go off, but if you're close to it, you are going to be stunned, and your immediate reaction, if you're even able to think at all, is to get away from that noise. So I think stun grenades and weapons should be managed differently. They should still inflict their basic damage as hit point damage for the first success that's rolled. I mean, getting shot or blown up by anything is still going to hurt. But a critical success is the stun instead of a roll on the critical hit table. And that critical effect should be more than just doing stress damage instead. It should allow the possibility of putting the target down, if only for a moment. So if a stun attack crits, and thus delivers a stun effect, the victim must roll to resist the stun using empathy dice, and needing to score as many successes as there were sixes rolled in the attack. If they fail, they are stunned for the next round, during which they get another resist roll, with their target number reduced by one. If they succeed the resist roll, they can operate as normal. Well, I know I didn't ask you to talk about... Uh stun but <laughs> those are some very good observations on the stun mechanic yeah. which is hardly a mechanic in the book isn't it it's it's a little point of confusion we've i've seen people discussing it on the forum and things like that and what you've got there seems to me a quite a workable solution yeah i always just thought that i mean i i really like the idea of having stress points as well as hit points i think that's a really good thing but the game doesn't really make enough of it i don't think so and having a stun mechanic or you know a stun special um, special effect which simply does stress damage rather than hit points damage well okay it's it's fine but it's doesn't really doesn't really do anything else you can't crit with it um so i think you know if you if you want to play a character that wants to stun somebody 
I think you know you might want to do it because you're a covert operative and you want to put them down straight away. Um, and the rules as they are, as written, don't allow you to do that. My little yeah bugbear. I mean, I guess I guess you can you can make that sort of covert character do that with breaking them on on hit points as opposed to stress. Yeah. With a you know to, to one shot them effectively and break them without necessarily dealing them a critical hit and killing them. Yeah. But um, yeah, it then kind of makes the whole point of stress points a little bit redundant, unless it's purely mental attack. So. Uh, and then when you know if you're if you're using stress points for when weird creatures zap them with their minds, then how does a stun gun fit in with that? Mm-hmm. But as I say, I think you've got um, some useful solutions there if people want to experiment with them. I think they should poisons as well. You know, it's interesting. I've just been reading about poisons in Forbidden Lands, and it all seems so much simpler there in Forbidden uh-huh. Lands. And in a way, what you've done with the poisons is something that's a bit more like the Forbidden Land solution. Mm. Um, but of course, this is this is all effectively a a problem with the fact that they, for for I think very good reasons, um, merge strength and agility into hit points and and your mental characteristics into stress points, so that you can't attack each of those individually. Um, I, in many other parts of play i think that's probably a good thing but th- things like the poison mechanics uh are, are, are a little bit broken by that thing with hit points yeah aren't they yeah and as and you know as the rules are written as well there is no crit from it so there is there is absolutely yeah. no way you can die from a poison in coriolis with the rules as written uh because you get broken great you're broken you know you come back after a good night's yeah. sleep um, so, I think that didn't didn't strike me as uh, as as being, you know, um, quite how I'd want it. And particularly when um, the 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 scenario I ran with Morgan, my, well, Morgan and Dean, my my sons, when Morgan had the great idea of trying to sneak in and use an aer- aerosol delivered poison to to kill his target, um, I hadn't even realised at that point that. The, po- the poison couldn't kill the target anyway. And we got into a, a confrontation in the bedroom between the target, the target's guards, and uh, Ajit Mia, Morgan's character. And Morgan was like, well, why the hell am I here? I, I-, I should have known that the poison was never, ever going to work. And he got a bit grumpy because he started looking like he was going to get killed. <laughs> but he-, he managed to escape. But, uh, yeah. So I-, I think having a mechanism whereby a poison can kill you is probably a good thing. And obviously I offered two potential solutions about how to do it. Um, the first one, where if you're broken, you take a crit, is the simplest one, but you still need to do a lot of damage um, in order to get the crit in the first place. So somebody who was particularly robust with you know nine or ten hit points, again, mm. if, you, if, you, if you limit, if you cap the poison strength at eight, which is what they do in the game. But, I mean, you don't have to. You can have more powerful ones. But if you do limit it to that, then obviously people with hit points of 9 or 10, again, can't be killed by poison, full stop. So it's... Uh... So, yeah, I'm, I've put out a couple of ideas there for people to think about. Um, and... Yeah, no, I think they're, they're all good ideas. All very useful. Um, 
not quite clarifications, but extensions. Mm. And also, you've given us grenades. What do you? Th I mean, we've, um, uh, the, again, there's been a lot of confusion over the grenade rules in forums. I think I pretty much sorted it out in a discussion that a whole bunch of us had on one of the forums. Yeah. But you've um, you've cut through all that. So when I was writing this. Uh... I was reading through the rules and I thought, yeah, exp yeah, the explosives rules sound actually, they sound okay. They're they're much more they're they're basically gun rules but with an area of effect impact. And I thought that's yeah. fine. That that's going to work really well. And then in the game that I ran last night, which I'll talk about uh, a little bit, um, there was a lot. There's a lot of bombs going off, and there are suicide bombers basically trying to kill the players. Uh, and Hanbal, Tony's character, had on two occasions um, a person with a suicide vest get to him and detonate it, and it didn't kill him. And so again, <laughs> the rules are a little bit broken in that because I was house ruling that the guys, the the Zelosian acolytes who were committing committing suicide, they would die as a result of the explosion, which I think is fair enough. If you've got a suicide vest on, you set it off, you're not going to be very well after that. Um, but rolling the dice, even with nine dice for the explosives, um, okay, one of them did give Tony a crit, which was a, a minor crit, broke his foot, but the other one, I got no, no successes at all, and so this guy set the bomb off right next to him, literally had run up to him and grabbed him and set, set it off, without doing him any harm whatsoever, and the way I, the way we sort of narrated it in the game was that Tony managed to scrabble under the ramp of the ship where they were fighting, so was shielded from the blast. But still, I think there's a range thing. You probably have to make the danger of explosives at close range really dangerous. If you're within two metres of a bomb going off, it's going to be yeah. bad. Um, a bit further away, up to short range, 20 metres, then, yeah, you could get away with, I think, get it, you know, the... There would be occasions, I'm sure, at that range where you wouldn't suffer a really serious injury, um, depending on how strong the explosive was, of course. So it didn't feel right to have a suicide bomber effect yeah, effectively that, sat on Tony, detonating the device, him being splattered and Tony being not, not affected at all. So that didn't feel right. No, I, it's always interesting. I, was, I think the part of the problem here is how grenades work in, in film and TV. Uh, compared to how they work in um, actual war, mm. you know. Yeah. Uh, uh, in actual war, you use them to clear a room, pretty much. Yeah. And you throw one in, and the room is pretty much cleared. On film and TV, you use them to create a wonderful explosion for our heroes to walk away from nonchalantly. Yeah. Or to possibly leap over a hedge from. Uh, slightly panically, but you know the key thing about uh, grenades is they generally don't do much harm to our heroes. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and I guess game designers possibly think, well, we ought to, you know, let let's weight it in that direction rather than the realistic direction where everybody dies. That's a fair um, enough comment. Although I would say everything else in Coriolis combat system doesn't give the players that dirty. latitude <laughs> you know so it's no. like fuck you players fuck you players oh no explosives they don't want to hurt you with those <laughs> you know so yeah but I, as i say i think it's not necessarily uh i uh, it's not l limited to this game i'm pretty sure no, no. um 
Phoenix Dawn uh, or Phoenix Command, not Phoenix Dawn. Uh, Command. Yeah. That old system probably was really deadly with grenades. Yeah. But um, so I think I think but f- most games I think kind of underpower grenades and explosions. Yeah. Uh, in favour of the players. Yeah, that's that's fair enough. And I was working on the assumption when I was setting up this scene that the players were going to be desperately trying to gun down these guys as they're running towards them, which was the kind of feel I wanted to put into it. I hadn't expected that. You know, Tony's die rolling. Well, I should have expected, actually. I hadn't anticipated that Tony's die rolling would be so bad that a couple of them would get through. Um, and I did expect somebody potentially to die in the scenario because I thought it was going to be quite a dangerous one. What, tell us all about what's been happening lately in Spectral Corsair. So the, the last scenario, had we, we had to stop right in the middle of the action, as it were, because we ran out of time on the day. And we left it with the crew about to assault... Um, a ship that they'd created to look like... uh, It was a trap to draw out the witch smeller, Mariam. And it succeeded. She was on the ship with some acolytes and they were just about to assault the ship with some Legion support. The first thing that happened in the scenario was the Legion support was suddenly withdrawn because just before they assaulted the ship, the what was called the Coriolis insurrection happened and fighting broke out in the cellar and there were a few sporadic battles broke out across the whole station. And the Legion were involved in a rearguard action at the lift to the cellar, trying to stop these Zelosian insurgents getting actually out onto the core. So it was a real drama and a potential disaster for the Legion. So every troop was being sent to, to try and repel and then quash the, the resistance that was being sprung up around the station. So suddenly they were left on their own to assault the ship and take down the witch smeller. Um, they had a bit of a debate about whether they were going to do that or not. And ultimately, Hanbal, as the captain said, I'm not going to order an assault unless we're all we're all in. And eventually they all sort of said, OK, yes, we, we, we ought to, to assault the ship. And it was getting across the hangar to the ship itself where they were coming under attack from these acolytes who were, who were um, suicide bombers. They managed to get past that fight. Tony uh, Hanbell took a, an injury and had a broken foot. Um, one of the others had another relatively minor critical injury that wasn't going to kill them. Um, Norsa took a knife to the leg and had a critical injury there, but he was saved uh, as, a result of the, uh, as a result of the fight. And they ended up in a bit of a stalemate with Mariam being on the cargo deck of the, the Golden Griffin, which is the ship where they'd laid the trap to, to draw her out. And they were outside. And she was setting off or building up her armour, uh, which is you know, Zelosian animated armour, um, to detonate. A bit like Predator in Predator. And mm-hmm. she was giving them an opportunity to escape, to leave, um, which was perplexing them somewhat. And then she spoke to them and said, it doesn't have to end this way. Perhaps you can actually help me and I can help you. And this is all very confusing to them. They didn't know quite know what to do. Um, and then she said, I'm not what you think. I'm not actually a witch smeller. And they were, okay, what the hell's going on? You look like a witch smeller. You're dressed in witch smeller armour. That kind of, in their books, makes you a witch smeller. And, and she said, well, I actually work for Alarm's Temple. And <laughs> so they, they ended up negotiating with her. And decided that they would help her get off the station um, 
fooling the Legion. I mean, none of them had any real strong loyalty to the Legion. And I'm not quite sure why they decided. I think they decided to, to carry on with the assault when they had the option to leave. Largely on the basis that they'd get into a lot of trouble. Um, and that they would then be uh, you know, at odds with both the Legion and the Order of the Pariah. But now, when they were kind of faced with the situation, it was a hard fight, it was a dangerous fight. Um, they found a third way. They found another way out. So they've agreed that they'll take her off Coriolis and take her to Menkar, which is where um, mm. there is a Alarms Temple, uh, sort of centre of uh, of administration almost, or a secret a secret centre, um, because they can't take her to Alarms Temple on Coriolis, obviously, and they don't want to fly through Zalos to get to Mira, where the other centre of Alam's Temple's power is concentrated. Uh, and that's where we left it. So they've just left Coriolis uh, on this journey. Um, and we'll see see where that takes them. That's all very exciting. And, um, well, I, it's a bit of a switcheroo. Yeah. Is it a recent switcheroo? Did you really plan to have Alam's Temple come in? Or, um, <laughs> or did you change your mind and introduce them? Um, either on the spur of the moment or uh, after you did your Alarms Temple essay last month? So I I decided that she should be Alarms Temple at about quarter to ten last night during the game. Um, <laughs> I knew it! <laughs> <laughs> because I, I'd been struggling a little bit about whether the campaign was going in the right direction. And having changed it from yeah. the traders, where actually they the players get a lot of choice and they, they, they get a lot of freedom to do what they want, to a a setup of uh, a campaign setup where they're kind of being given a mission and they go and do the mission and then they get another mission and go and do yeah. a mission. And I didn't get the sense that they were the players were really enjoying that in the same way that they were enjoying the freedom of being traders who could run around and make their own minds up. So I wanted to give them the opportunity to in-game make a character decision, crew decision that would then gu- you know guide me as the GM about what kind of game they wanted to play. And it was clear they weren't very keen on being stooges of the Legion. Uh, it was clear that they didn't just want to run either because you know, of the trouble that would get them in. They'd have to run to the rim somewhere and then hide out a bit, probably, they thought. So this gives them a third way whereby they've now got another uh, reasonable justification for doing what they're doing. And it does give me plenty of other campaign story opportunities to to move on by bringing in the Alarms Temple. So, yeah, mm. it worked out really well, I thought. I was quite pleased with that sort of eureka moment. Um, and it actually works out really well as well in the wider... I won't talk about it now because it will give spoilers... But immediately there were things I was thinking about further down the line and about, okay, why was she doing what she's doing? That then just all fell into place immediately. Just went click, 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 click. And everything just gelled really well when I had the idea, sat around the table in the upstairs room of the pub yesterday. Uh, I thought, okay, let's go with that. Excellent. <laughs> so you've written notes on that. So you remember that moment of clarity. Yes. I hope. Yes, and yes. It'll all make perfect sense in the future. Yes. <laughs> Funny enough, actually, uh, uh, w- my campaign has uh, had a similar, 
well, a similar thing where suddenly everything fell into place. But this was a story idea I had seeded um, pretty much the last time you and I played Coriolis, uh, which was in November last year. Yeah. And uh, that long I ago, put an idea it? in Blimey. there and it, it finally reached fruition in this scenario <laughs> here. Um, so, yeah, actually, I ought to just check before I start talking about mine. Are we done on yours? Yes, that's where we left it. They've, they're, Nothing else. They're heading to the portals in the Kua system to go to uh, Iwaz and stop off at Trini to get some work because they are also desperately out of money. Um, yeah. Excellent. So, let me tell you about the Al Mukadir campaign. Please Last time we do. talked about them, uh, they had been... Um, doing the pre-published uh, scenario, whose name I've just forgotten. Was it the, With the di- ice trawler? Dying Ship? The Dying Ship, yeah. thank you very much. Um, and that was just kind of a, to ease us all into it and uh, to start working out what everybody's relationships were. I didn't make them uh, do their relationship thing until after we'd, you know, we'd played that. And uh, that probably work quite well although there's an interesting problem which i want to discuss with you shortly Mm -hmm. so if you like this was going to be the beginning of our proper campaign uh which is the bit that i've written as opposed to just taking the pre-published scenario yeah um there was immediately a bit of a blocker on that though because uh as i told you last time uh brilliantly uh, one of the player characters had managed to get himself possessed by a <laughs> djinn, which was great. And I thought, ah, this is brilliant. And I will write a scenario about that and about being driven by this possession to this particular place and to retrieve this this object. And and then that opens up this and this opens up that. Yeah, that <laughs> will work nicely and uh, we'll go with that. Uh, but then, just as we were ready to start, Jace said, uh, who's, who's the player, he's, he's an artist uh, by trade, and he's got a, a big exhibition coming up and realised he had a lot of framing to do for this exhibition and said, look, I'm going to have to take a few weeks out while I concentrate on getting this stuff done. And I really didn't want to run the scenario I prepared um, without him, because he's the guy with the possession. <laughs> Uh, so I said, "Oh, we're going to have to delay this until he comes back." And we, you know, we we struggled about thinking, you know, "Is there something else we can play in the meantime?" And we did play actually um, something else which we quite enjoyed, and that something else was the Expanse Kickstarter. Uh, okay, the yeah, all right. Um, well, I'll be interested. Maybe we'll talk about that next time. Yeah, I'd be interested to hear your views after our comment of our discussion on RPG a day. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, maybe, maybe at the end of the the program, we'll see how long we're doing before we get on. Yeah. But yeah. So we did that expanse quick starter, uh, but then we still, we you know, we still had the rest of the month to fill, and uh, just the weekend before, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I suddenly an idea came to my head, and these guys, as you know, are members of the uh, Nazarene Sacrifice, uh, therefore. You know, they're a hidden organization and um, uh, they've been a little bit empowered by your characters stealing the soliloquy of sacrifice. <laughs> and then a bunch of people we played with at, um, at Dragon Meat releasing digital copies of that soliloquy of sacrifice 
which I still don't quite understand why they did that, but let's go with that. <laughs> they, they, they released it around the verse. So now this banned book is being read by all sorts of people. And I thought when these guys wanted to <clears> be <throat> evil guys who went around with dead people on their ship, um, I thought, well, you know, this, this all fits with the storyline that's developing across um, three different player groups here. I can go with this. This, yeah. is, this is my version of the horizon. Yeah. And um, it's time for them to rise. <laughs> Apparently. Anyway, <laughs> also moving on quickly yeah. and swiftly. <laughs> um, uh, I thought, of course, the problem is they none of these individual cells of the soliloquy of sacrifice knows who the other one is. So I could do an entirely Coriolis-based um, game where I had already said, rather than paying a mortgage on their ship, they had to pay a teeth, which is remarkably similar to the price you pay back on your ship. Uh but uh, it... they'd been told by the guys back on um, uh, Zib, where they started, that um, they just had to find the local clave, as I've called them, of the Nazarene sacrifice, uh, and give them the money every month um, and work out which their local clave was and try and get the right person. Uh, and I thought, well, we could base a whole event, you know, adventure around that. Can they find an organisation on Coriolis that's trying to be remain hidden. And um, even if it's to give them a bunch of money, 14,000 uh, burr they owed them. It's uh, a lot of cash. I thought that was an interesting little thing <laughs> that kind of introduces them into the weirdness of this. It might tempt them to say, well, we'll keep the money ourselves because surely we are the most important people um, in the Nazarene sacrifice on the station at the moment. Maybe we should just spend the money on on the cool stuff of our own. Uh-huh. They didn't go that way, though. They um, they they set about, honestly, trying to find the stuff. And our captain is a preacher, and he'd just um, given himself a mystic talent with the experience points in the previous scenarios ah. of uh, being able to hold seances and answer questions. Cool. So that's, he started off with that. And um, I thought, that's brilliant. Um, it's not quite what I had planned in terms of getting the clues to this, but let's run with this. So I gave them a bit of a vision that directed them to Merez Alcan, who is the guy that commissioned you to steal the beast statuette. Yep. Yep. And uh, in, in, in the scenario that's in the back of the book. And I have imagined um, that he was stealing that for somebody else. But then when he realized the power or maybe it's been communicating with him, it's turned him into a follower of the Nazarene sacrifice mm. and with his underworld connections he has become chief Nazarene sacrifice person on Coriolis so he's the guy cool. they're meant to be finding and giving the money to <laughs> and I gave him that vision um, I gave him a vision of his face sort of flickering in Doctor Who style um, special effects with with the face of the of the beast statuette um, and that was kind of the only clue I gave them. Oh, I also gave them a bit of his surroundings and his hiding in the cellar. <laughs> uh, not 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 any old cellar, the cellar on um, on Coriolis. Yeah. Um, and he's he's building himself a cadaver clock. Mm. And they got little flavours of that. But then how you know how to how to get that vision and connect it with an actual place on Coriolis, particularly because they were new, they hadn't twigged about the cellar at this point. Uh, so they were wandering around a bit and checking out the preachers on the spice parlor to see whether or the spice plaza to give them to see whether any of them were you know preaching Nazarene sacrifice stuff. 
and nobody was going to be doing that because I'm trying to say that the Nazarene sacrifice are indeed a hidden bunch of people who <laughs> hide from society. Highly illegal. That <laughs> nobody's the, going to be the third horizon. Even in the Spice Plaza, going no. worship the beast only. That the third horizon has spent uh, sixty but, years trying to eradicate and destroy. Yes, yeah. not a good idea. Uh, yeah, no, not not not. Not in the very centre of the consortium, <laughs> where, you know, where the Legion are walking past. Them. <laughs> yeah. That's not going to work. Uh, um, but I did thought, uh, I did have a clue prepared for exactly that emergency. And that was Lavim Tam, the guy who'd originally found the beast statuette, mm. who, in my version, after you'd left him, has um, acquired mystic powers himself and become a bit of a preacher. Oh. So they met him there. They also met um, the young woman that... Um, Andy's character had a bit of interaction with while you were doing that. Oh, yeah. Um, who, I'll tell you now, because you guys have moved beyond this, so it's not a spoiler. She was a Draconite. Yeah. And um, she was trying to recover the beast. Now oh. her mission is to, to uh, try and see what the uh, uh, local chapter or clave of the uh, Nazim sacrifice are doing on Coriolis. Uh, and so she was... they. They noticed her following um, them around a bit and uh, managed to turn the tables on her, follow her to where she mm. was based and discover some clues that said that she might not be the bigger girl that she appeared to be to them. Uh. But they didn't really get much further than that. And then they went off in an entirely different direction, which which was brilliant, but caught me a bit by surprise. Huh. They decided to go to the university They'd, they'd discovered Lavium Tam had been an archaeologist, and so they went to the foundation thinking they can find some clues about his mission there. And I thought, well, I hadn't actually planned this. But I had planned some other stuff. So when you went to com to get the soliloquy of sacrifice, you never discovered this, but the agent um, that had given you that mission was working for the foundation. And my backstory for this is that they want secrets to portal creation, which they think the Nazarene sacrifice hold and may be hidden in the soliloquy of sacrifice. Yeah. So it was all about them discovering the knowledge, the forbidden knowledge. And they wanted you to steal that book. And if you'd succeeded and had delivered the book, then they'd just have that information. As it turns out, you didn't succeed. You got shot to shit. We had no chance uh, of succeeding. Caught. We had no chance because you just—it was just raining. <laughs> no, you built up too many darkness points in my pool, built and then when I spent the darkness points, you just spent more. So I know because we had to more we, than four. We had to spend the darkness points because you were being so bloody difficult as a GM and being so evil. <laughs> Uh, and then and then we had to spend even more when you were spending the ones that we'd already given you. It's like ah, oh, outrageous. Yeah. Anyway, so the book <laughs> didn't get into their hands, um, and. Uh, I then uh, used that as an inspiration for the dragon meat scenario where I then sent yes. some investigators from the council to, to investigate your crime and they had released it. And actually it was a foundation player there who kind of convinced everybody that they should release it. So mm. without even knowing it, she was kind of doing the foundation's agenda. I mean, she might have, I, I might well doing, have said something. You mean doing like, the Nazarene um, sacrifices agenda, not the foundations? Well... <laughs> At the moment, the foundation think they're working for themselves. Anyway, <laughs> okay. um, these guys went to the foundation to ask about uh, the 
archaeological dig where Lavim Tam had discovered this thing, which wasn't something I prepared for at all. So I quickly rolled up a character using the fabulous chart and came up with this uh, woman with a beard because <laughs> um, it said, you know, it said, what's her distinguishing feature? She's got a beard. Um, and I was describing her as I was rolling the dice. Uh, who I then said, because, of course, she she's been trying to get hold of this book she might know a few of the secrets so i said that she had a secret handshake that um marked her out as a member of the um, nazarene sacrifice ah. and they bought it hook line and sinker <laughs> um they they now here's, it, there's a challenge here in that two of the players were paid up members of nazarene sacrifice one of them sophia the pilot has always said, I'm not part of this. I don't know what they're doing. I want, you know, I, I want to be just a pilot working on this and, you know, maybe discover what they're, they're, the true horror of what they're doing later in the game. And, of course, they then had to send her away from that meeting because they wanted to talk Nazarene sacrifice stuff. Yeah. Uh, so they did. And uh, I they sent her back to check on the ship. And then the two of them met with her and immediately sort of handed over the cash that they'd been collecting. They'd They'd taken little bits of cash out of all sorts of cash points so that it would be untraceable. <laughs> and they had a big bag of beer to give her. And they gave it to her. And she said, oh, oh this will be a lovely um, a donation to the Orphans Fund. And passed it on to her secretary. And <laughs> and then spread, you know, suggested that she might be the highest ranking member of the Nazim sacrifice on the station to them. <laughs> and I gave them all sorts of clues, like her not knowing very much, even admitting that she was only a recent convert. <laughs> and they didn't test this at all. And they just, they gave her the cash. And um, uh, between them, they 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 worked out that um, Merez Alcan had got the statuette and she said, you need to get that statuette off him. He's, he's uh, 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 apostate. Uh, he shouldn't yeah. have that. I need that. We need that. And she showed them the original book which she had stolen, which I imagine now that it had been somehow transferred into the foundation thing. So that kind of sealed the deal for them. Right. She was obviously kosher. Yeah. Or obviously sacrifices. Yeah. Exactly the opposite of kosher. Probably. <laughs> um, and that's where the scenario ended. Cool. Uh, or that's where the session ended that week. And then we came back just last night. At which point he said, you know, I wonder whether we were a bit too trusting. <laughs> of, uh, <laughs> at which point I kind of just burst into laughter and said, yeah, I think so. Given that I rolled her up, <laughs> you know, she wasn't an NPC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you've just given her all your money. So, you know, they did think that maybe they'd made a bit of a mistake. And uh, this time they, they tracked down Meryl's Alcan uh, very well. They had another bit of an encounter with... Um, the Draconite agent, Salindra. And and here we come to an important point. I'm desperate. When you've got this, when you've got two guys who are part of a conspiracy and a third player who isn't part of that conspiracy, and I'd invented the scenario, which is about just delving a bit deeper into the conspiracy, I hadn't, I realised I had nothing actually for Sophia to do. Yeah. And... That's a problem. Yes. So, yeah. I for the the first scenario, I just played that and I didn't really think about it until the end of that. I thought, well, I didn't actually have much to do. But and particularly, it was driven home when they had to send her away so they could talk with this, uh, talk with the um, with the woman. Luckily, she had to go and catch a train anyway. The player did. So huh. this was in the last twenty minutes of the session, and so she, you know, she didn't have to sit there 
listening to them not tell us stuff. Yeah. But still, I didn't actually have anything to do. So over the intervening week, I thought that um, the Draconite would try and make contact with her, seeing her as a weak point in the crew. Okay, cool. And try and build a relationship with her and, and maybe give her a, a task. Now, interestingly, she collaborated with the crew to make sure that the rest of the crew heard the Draconite making these approaches. Which wasn't my plan. Okay. Um, um, so that, you know, I still haven't got her got a secret mission. But then a bit later on, when they were they were looking for Meraz Alcan in the sewers and there's a big bazaar in there, they were looking at all sorts of stuff. She went off on her own to um, try and find a job. Now, I rolled up a job randomly. You know, she said I wanted to do a smuggling job or something like that. So I, you know, I gave her the, the traders. I pulled the the traders tables and yeah. the compendium and we rolled up a job it's quite a easy job just on the roll of the dice um but then she said afterwards or not afterwards but in a little pause in the game she said the reason i want to get this job is i want to take this talent with my experience points and the talent she's chosen is the assassin talent okay so i'm thinking oh well i wouldn't have given you the smuggling job i'd have done <laughs> something but the woman and they anyway um so she doesn't want to just reveal that she's got that she spent the money on the talent but she doesn't just want to reveal it she wants to have a a storyline where where she acquires it in some way so so that's my problem is it's you know it's all very well having great fun with a bunch of people who want to be chaotic evil but when one of them doesn't particularly if you've made up a scenario on the fly um it's difficult to fit that person into the chaotic evil party. Yeah. I'm going to try and um, probably make her a Draconite agent. I wonder mm. even whether I might retcon it with a, an agreement. Yeah. Say maybe that's what you've always been. Potentially. It's always um, difficult when you've got uh, a group who've, who have motivations or uh, storylines that are are potentially diametrically opposed to one another. And it, it, it makes life... Really- yeah. It's 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 likely to be uh, you know something that's probably relatively short lived in campaign terms because eventually the crunch will come where uh, you know it, it all comes out and you have to decide how do you compromise between the group. So I think it's thinking about the you know the 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 the, the line of the campaign where you know you're running it with with me Tony and Andy. Um, Yafet and Salah? Is it Salah or Salem? Yes. Um, Salem, I think, isn't it? Oh. Um, um, Tony's Salah. Andy's character is Salem. Yeah. Your brother is Salah. Yeah. So with, with Yafet and Salem, we are likely to come to some sort of crunch because he's turning ever more against the Nazarene sacrifice and I'm turning ever more towards it. So it's... Yes. And that's fine... As long, I guess, it is fine. It's an interesting thing to play out. Actually, you 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 don't want necessarily to do it with every campaign or every game you run, but getting to a point where two characters, player characters, might have to have a go at each other, it's it's not a bad one. Yeah, actually, once in a while. Funny enough, Andy texted me um, earlier this week, or or within the last couple of weeks, anyway, saying we're going to have to do something about this. Because I can see I'm I'm going to come to blows with uh, Yafet. Yeah. And I said, well, let's not worry about it at the moment. Because first of all, you've got to get off a prison planet. Um, 
and so you have you have got to get off a prison planet yeah <laughs> um, yeah and uh, maybe you both won't get off <laughs> you can tell oh it's quite possible uh, maybe, but, maybe uh, neither of us will get off yes uh, <laughs> yeah uh, um and we start roll up a whole new bunch of characters <laughs> and i'll make sure that you're probably not nazarene sacrifice given given stuff that i've been reading but uh, yeah, yeah say no more about that yeah damn i've spoiled it <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah so it, no it was a really enjoyable campaign i love that that seed i planted in that mission that you guys had yeah to rescue the uh thing came to track and meraz alcan has just explained that to this party so it's not as marvellous as if I'd been explaining it to you and you'd realised, ah, oh, that's the story, but I'm explaining it to you now. <laughs> anyway, I'm very pleased with how it's gone so no, far. Excellent. Um, there is a moment, I will just say this about the the Emissary Lost campaign. There is, there is a moment where I might want to retcon some stuff. Just that little clue there. Okay. They might play an important part in the very beginning of the campaign. Um, which would mess your two timelines up a bit, but it's almost it's an opportunity that yeah. I, I'll, I'll I'll have to resist very hard to do that. Okay. Well, sometimes um, I've been talking for a long time have, yeah. about that, but I want to talk some more, and I want to talk about their ship. Yep. Well, the Al Muhadir. Let's move straight on to that then. For icon worshippers across the horizon, including the Church of the Icons and the Order of the Pariah. It is traditional to cremate the dead, except those revered as saints. Their holy bodies are preserved so that their spirits may continue to find a way to the horizon and continue their good work. One of the many heresies that the Nazarene sacrifice were accused of was their insistence that every initiated member of the cult was a saint, to the horror and disgust of other societies. No dead cultist of the Nazarene sacrifice was cremated. Instead, the beautiful dead were interred on charnel ships, which constantly plied the dark between the stars. Nazarene charnel ships were never designed for atmospheric entry. Generally, class 4 or 5, they were serviced by shuttle and supply ships. Their main hull took the form of an ancient boat lying on its side, heading keel first into the dark. Two huge archaic graviton projectors extended rearwards. The macabre cargo was kept externally, the vacuum of space desiccating and preserving the bodies of the saints while giving their spirits the opportunity to commune with the dark between the stars. The structure that holds the dead is a scaffold frame between the graviton projectors which can expand as more bodies are added. It is built around the entrance to the hangar so that Corteir shuttles could pause on their way into the hangar to inter the saintly cargo in their appointed place on the scaffold. When the horizon turned against the Nazarene sacrifice in the early years of the Portal Wars, it was considered a matter of both faith and hygiene to instruct the Legion to seek out and destroy every charnel ship that the sacrificed had launched. It is doubtful whether this task was completed. With the arrival of the Zenith, the Legion gradually became distracted by other tasks. There are rumours of ships of the dead still plying the space lanes. And there is at least one 
still in operation. The Al-Mudahir is hundreds of years old. No one knows its yard of construction, and some have suggested that it may have been built in orbit around Al-Ada itself in the first horizon. How it survived the purge is unknown. Al-Murahir features ancient glyph-type eight-point armour that predates the sort used by the Order of the Pariah. Apart from being very hard to actually look at, the armour can negate all damage from an incoming attack. This generates two darkness points for the GM. If the attack is a torpedo attack, three darkness points are generated. This effect can only be used once for regular attacks and once for torpedo attacks in a spaceship combat. Like every Charnel ship, it carries its cargo externally. There are around 1,250 tonnes of corpses in the scaffolding that projects from the aft of the vessel, between the two old and outsized graviton projectors. In theory, if there is a revival of the sect, and many more adherents to inter, the cargo scaffold could extend even further. A cloistered arboretum of remembrance sits below the base of the cargo scaffold. It's a long, square walk with a number of stopping places, benches, tables and chairs or water features. Looking up, the plexiglass ceiling reveals the ranks of the dead stacked high above. The artificial gravity on board is orientated so that aft is up and down points to the keel of the ship and the direction of travel. The Arboretum has become the de facto social space for the crew because the crew quarters are 20 basic coffin-style bunks with shared facilities. There is also, of course, a stasis hold, which, as usual for a ship of this size, holds up to 60 people in stasis. The bridge is on the lowest deck at the front of the vessel. The consoles are set around a large round plexiglass viewport set in the floor, which can be disconcerting to visitors as the ship appears to be falling through space. The original Nazarene Sacrifice Chapel, with its cadaver clock, is still in place, but to disguise the true nature of the ship, a more normal nine-icon chapel has been retrofitted around it. Access to the cadaver clock is now through a secret door in the dancer's alcove. None of the crew actually know what the cadaver clock does. So many mysteries of the sacrifice were lost in the purging. Close to the false chapel is a chapel of rest, which has been fitted out to do double duty as a med lab. Other modifications to the vessel include a number of weapon systems. There is a torpedo launch system, currently stocked with four ancient antimatter torpedoes. Given that this ammunition costs almost a third of the value of the ship, the crew are advised to use them only as a last resort. Even more recently, the vessel was fitted with a data pulse system and an accelerator cannon. The current crew have not yet explored the entire ship, but they do know there is a workshop and a hangar, which contains a vessel especially commissioned for their mission. The clave of the Nazarene Sacrifice, which sponsored this mission, have commissioned a modern Class II shuttlecraft to act as the ship's shuttle, and its public face. In an effort to disguise the true nature of Al-Mudahir and its crew, the clave ordered Karon from the Chelebs shipyard of Mira, 
heart of the Icon Church. Its living quarters include four coffins and a more standard cabin. There is a concealed section in the hold for the transport of illicit cargo, such as stolen relics. Its only defence is an autocannon. Designed for atmospheric entry, it leaves its more macabre mothership hidden in the dark of space. Charon is equipped with a ship's intelligence to make it semi-autonomous, capable of operating without a pilot if required. With its brand new, precise thrusters, it is a very capable flyer. However, it takes its mission to hide the true nature of its crew and protect them from exposure very seriously, which can make it somewhat more obtuse than obedient. Together, these two ships and their crew are on a risky mission. Emboldened by the discovery of a copy of a book once thought lost, a soliloquy of sacrifice, and the Council's decision to publicly release the text, the sacrifice clave hidden on Zib have repurposed the Al-Mudakir to seek out other claves around the horizon, and especially to recover the knowledge and artefacts that, since the purging, have been hidden or lost for generations. I love that ship. I think the ideas behind it um, are outstanding. They're really good. Really good. Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, a couple of things. Just... Next time somebody asks me what's the best compliment anybody's ever paid you in gaming, I'll remember <laughs> that. <laughs> yes, and he didn't even have to pay me to say it either. So um, <laughs> two things very briefly are just, just mention. Um, firstly, I mean, you talked a bit about Sophia your your character your 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 player is, is Sophia the player or the character uh Sophia is the player um Nadira is her character Nadira um how if Nadira is the pilot of the ship how does she not notice that you've got thousands of bodies hanging off the outside of it um well i think we've we've got the idea that this is an you know, this is an ancient ship. Is it an empty it's one? Three hundred years old. It's got no. Sorry? It's got no bodies on it. It's empty. It's got. It's got a good cargo of bodies on it. Yes, it does have a good cargo of bodies. Um, and they're on the outside I of think, the ship. And they're on the outside of the ship. So ha- yes, yeah, in this okay. sort of scaffolding contraption. Refer that to it has at the back. Refer to the question that I posed just a moment ago. Then <laughs> is she blind? <laughs> well, or? I I think she might think it's an old tradition but entirely acceptable with the nine icons and not necessarily anything to do with the Nazarene sacrifice. Okay. Uh, you know, and she might even twig that the Nazarene sacrifice are a thing, but may not put that together with um, the Nazarene sacrifice being evil. Yeah. But I don't think, I don't think she even knows that the Nazarene sacrifice is a thing. They've been portraying them as church of the icons. Right. They've been portraying themselves as um, a, a branch of the church of the icons. And, um, she has, I think, accepted that the Church of the Icons takes in many different flavours of the faith and just tries to show how they all fit into yeah. the nine icons. Oh, okay. Um, Interesting. So this is a slightly strange thing, where yeah. they, you know, from a culture where they haven't burnt bodies but insist on carrying them around forever. But if they need a pilot to fly them through space forever, then she's your man, your <laughs> woman. Yeah, uh, yeah. So would this? Uh, so I think that gets away with it. Okay, I think particularly it's I, a I, you know, tenuous, I, was thinking, I would say, hmm. but uh... yeah, yeah. And what if they take other visitors? <laughs> I, I, I thought it would be a lovely idea if the shuttle 
kind of um, has to descend through the hangar uh, to the hangar through the scaffolding yeah. of the external cargo. I love that idea. Uh, yeah. uh, and so I decided maybe the shuttle didn't have any windows except uh, in the cabin. But then, except for, like you, for the I pilot. went. <laughs> except the pilot's one of the people. One I think that might be the point where I thought. Let's give this shuttle an AI so that, you know... She doesn't maybe, have to pilot it. Maybe she's never actually sat in the pilot seat. No, maybe, maybe. But... Um, uh, no, uh, cool. Um, so, presumably, though, this is a design of ship that lots of people around the horizon, if they saw it, would immediately recognise it as being something evil. I'm not sure, because uh, it's 100 years old. I think there may be... You know, well, it's... I think I've said it's about 300 years yeah. old. But it's at least 70 years since the Legion um, wiped the the last of the Nazarene sacrifice vessels that they could find right. from the Black. So, you know, that's that's two or three generations. I mean, I'm sure there will be a dramatically appropriate moment where some non-player character kind of gets a glimpse <laughs> of the ship <laughs> and uh, says, Hold on, you guys are evil! Um, but... Uh, Right now, I'm uh, not making it a problem. And especially by the fact that that ship's out in space, uh, miles away yeah. in the dark between the stars. Mm. And the ship that they actually interface with most normal people is the shuttle, which is a perfectly ordinary uh, mirror, yeah. modern, brand new shuttle um, that might well look like it is the sort of thing that they, somebody from the church of the yeah. would fly around cool. in. Cool. I, I just, just having a quick look at your picture that you drew. And they, it, it strikes me that you've got your rectangular structure where the bodies are. And on either side of it, on two sides of it, you've got like the engines. You wonder who gets the cheap seats that are hidden behind the, <laughs> hidden behind the engines? You know, you think if you were, if yeah. they were all saints, so then you'd think... Hang no. on, I'm not going to be stuck down here next to a blooming exhaust from this engine for eternity. <laughs> Bear in mind these are gravitic engines, so you know that's not actually burning. That's not like gas flame no, coming true. out. Although I will obviously admit that it's all about energy of some sort coming out, and energy could well be giving off some form of heat. <clears throat> I'm sure those aren't the best places to be. <laughs> but, um, so they're cooked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but I think I think that. Within, you know, not only they're being irradiated by every sun they pass, yeah, they're being yeah. splattered by every micro particle that um, I think that's part of the joy of, of um, leaving your body in space. Uh, I, I think I think they're all OK with that. Yeah, OK, fair um, enough. <laughs> but that sketch, you know, you can see that I'm not the best. 3D modeler. I'm not at all a 3D modeler because that's not a 3D modeler. <laughs> that was just getting in my own head. We'd we'd talk some pictures, you know. We'd uh, that was a really interesting uh, kind of group decision about what the ship should be. Yeah. Is first of all, they they um they were looking at the Nazarene descriptions of the Nazarene ships, and they said, "Can we have like a not Nazarene ships, so the, the Zelosian ships?" With their with their battle scenes painted on the outside, and they said, "Oh, can we have like actual bodies?" Okay. <laughs> no, don't be stupid. I mean, even if you're going to be the Nazarene sacrifice, you're not going to have actual bodies on your ship. And then when I read about external cargo, I thought, "Why not?" Oh, but they can. Yeah. <laughs> excellent. No, it's a great, really good, um, excellent little bit of work there, Matt. Really enjoyed that. Cool. We have. Okay. We have been... What are we going to talk about next week? Uh, I don't know. 
Now, we did promise not to talk about The Expanse when it came up in conversation earlier on, but there is actually something I'd like to bring from The Expanse to Coriolis. Ah. Um, and I haven't quite worked out how to do it yet, but by the next episode, I will at least have a suggestion that we can discuss. And that is, uh, The Expanse has a kind of a slightly more complex system for getting information out of people. It's, you know, it's kind of based around the detective uh, feeling of the Expanse books and TV series. Okay. So it's 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 gone it's it's gone quite big on cool. that. So you're and that's one of the things that worked really well in the Expanse and I've got an idea about how you might bring that to Coriolis. So let me correlate my thoughts. Consider that your into homework. Consider that your homework, Matt. Okay. Homework delivered. Brilliant. Cool. Improving manipulation. Excellent. And I'm sure we'll think of some other things as well to talk about before uh, we reconvene for next time. But I think... Other stuff will happen. It will. There'll be a Kickstarter it about blooming Tales in the Flood that we need to talk about. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, um, thank you, everybody, for listening to us today. Uh, from me, it's goodbye. And it's goodbye for me. And may the icons bless your dead bodies. That, that didn't <laughs> sound right, did it? <laughs> No, I don't want my listeners um, to be dead. Uh, make, make, no. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we should say, and may your departed journey under the blessings of the icons. That'll do. Goodbye, everyone. Bye. been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface is code by Fontfabric. Yeah, cut, uh, cut, cut the wives out, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll edit some of your wives out of that. <laughs> <laughs> mm, uh, not sure we will. Depends what. So what's, what's, what's the offer, Adam? What do we get if we edit out the wives' comment? Uh, we, we can talk <laughs> some uh, Patreon discounts, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. okay we'll, we'll do that offline then, shall we? Yeah, excellent. Brilliant. <laughs> Smashing. Yeah. I'm going to stop recording Brilliant. Now. Thanks very much, Adam.